0: Mark chapter 15. When I was in fifth grade, our boys' Sunday school class did a camp out on a big farm. This was when I was growing up in Texas. And there was a big farm, and us boys had a lot of fun out there. And this will date me, but we played A-team in Dukes of Hazard. And um, hide and go seek. And we played a bunch of, of games. And, and as we were running around out there, I came across this bundle of rebar, concrete wire. It was rusted, it was pointing, it was all bundled up together. And I made a mental note to myself, I don't want to run into that. That looks dangerous. So it got dark. And so we started playing hide and go seek in the dark. And sure enough, I barreled around the corner at 100 miles an hour. And I forgot that that rebar was there and so i tripped over it and a pointed spike went right into my left knee probably about 4 or 5 inches in and thankfully it didn't go in at a straight 90 degree angle cuz it probably would have hit the bone but it went down and so i'm sitting there and i'm yelling in excruciating pain i had been pierced by something sharp into my leg and i was yelling and i was screaming and finally one of the adults came and they pulled the thing out, which was painful, and pulled it out of my leg. And then I had to be rushed to the hospital. I had stitches and had a tetanus shot, and I still have a, a scar to this day on my leg. And many of you have probably had a type of injury where you screamed in excruciating pain. It was excruciating. You thought you were going to die, it was so painful. Yet, as painful as it was for this 5th grade boy, nothing compares to the excruciating and suffering and intense pain that Jesus, our Savior, endured on the cross. Next Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. So next Sunday we're focusing on the empty tomb, but today we're going to focus on the anguish of the cross. I think it's important for us to think about the cross this week leading up to the empty tomb next Sunday. So we're going to take a few weeks from the Gospel of Luke and just kind of get our hearts prepared for Resurrection Sunday. That's why we're going to be in Mark this morning. But I want to remind you of what 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 says. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now this passage of Scripture is the heart of the Gospel. It's the heart of the Gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus for our sins according to the Scriptures. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to ask the question, how much do we actually think about the cross? I know it's a trite saying that we throw around as Christians all the time Jesus died for your sins. And we know that, and children grow up hearing that, but how often do we truly meditate on what Jesus experienced at the cross? How often do we fix our eyes, our gaze, our heart on what Jesus experienced in those dark hours when he was suspended on the cross? One of my favorite quotes from John Calvin is this He says, In the cross of Christ, As in a splendid theater, the incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. The glory of God shines never more brightly than in the cross. So today, I want us to see the incomparable goodness of God in the cross. I want us to leave here this morning never seeing God's glory shine so brightly as it has when we look at the cross, the anguish of the cross. So let's draw our attention to Mark chapter 15. And we're picking up in the middle of the account, but Jesus has been flogged with a cat of nine tails, probably a bunch of bone and a bunch of glass and a bunch of metal put together at the end of this leather strip, and he's been beaten and flogged. And Pilate has sentenced him to be crucified, to be delivered over for crucifixion. So let's pick up in Mark chapter 15. Let's pick up in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on, him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sakbachthani. That means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So, what I want to do this morning is I want to explore this passage of Scripture from three aspects or addressing three truths. And so, here's the first Jesus experienced physical torture on the cross physical torture. We can't downplay the physical torture that Jesus experienced in those dark hours. Now we pick up here in verse 16 right after Pilate has sentenced Jesus to death and they lead him to what's called the praetorium or the governor's headquarters and there's a whole battalion. Now some scholars believe that could be up to 600 men that take Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they've already flogged him. And now there's another round of mocking and shame that Jesus has to endure. So they put upon him a purple cloak. And obviously they're mocking Jesus because purple is a signal of of royalty. What kings would wear. So they put a a purple cloak on him. And they're mocking Jesus for being, quote-unquote, king of the Jews. Who is this king? Because in their mind, only Caesar, the emperor, was king. Not some Galilean peasant from from Nazareth. Not this man. He he surely can't be king. Now normally, a crown would be made of gold leaves, like you would see on the Olympics back in those days. It would signify military victory, or, or a king would wear like a golden crown. But these men fashioned a crown of thorns. 12 inch spikes from the palm date, and place that crown of thorns on Jesus's head. Excruciating pain going into his temple, and they continue to mock him. Hail, King of the Jews! That's what they would say to Caesar. They would say, hail Caesar, victorious emperor, so that they're mocking Jesus. They're they're making fun of Jesus. So not only has Jesus already been publicly exposed to flogging and humiliation, but this is the second time that these soldiers come in and they humiliate him. And if that's not enough to put a a crown of thorns on his head, it says they struck him with this bamboo-like stick, Verse 19, they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Every bit of what's happening to Jesus here was prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. Spit in Jesus' face. Crown of thorns on his head. Pulling his beard. Hitting him with a stick. Flogging him. Mocking him. And then verse 20 says, When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes back on him, and they led him out to crucify. A Roman execution squad, a crucifixion squad, men whose job it was to kill and make sure people died, consisted of four soldiers overseen by a centurion. A centurion was a commander of a hundred troops, so you'd have the centurion and the four Roman soldiers. That was the execution squad. And normally a condemned man would carry his own cross. Now, when we think about carrying the cross, the, the upward part would already be out there. It was the cross beam that he would carry. But because Jesus was so excruciatingly been flogged, he's exhausted. He cannot even have the strength to carry his own cross. And so they compel this man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross for him. And it was custom, both Roman and Jewish custom to kill a criminal outside the city limits. So they take Jesus outside the gates of Jerusalem to a place called Golgotha, the skull, the hill of the skull, Mount Calvary. And so they lead him out there. And in verse 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh but he did not take it. Now you may say, what's this wine mixed with myrrh? Let me put it this way. Moms that have had children, how many of you would prefer an epidural or to go through it without any type of painkiller? Wine mixed with myrrh was an ancient narcotic that was used to deaden the pain. Like a a mom would take an epidural because I don't want to feel the pain of, of giving childbirth. Jesus does not take the narcotic because he wants to be clear-headed the entire time, and he consciously knows what he's going through. I'm not going to take anything to deaden the pain. I'm going to face this head-on without any narcotics, without any painkillers. I'm going to take the full weight of what's coming to me. I'm going to submit to the will of the Father, fully conscious, clear-headed, and I'm going to endure the results. Now, here's something you need to know. Psalm 22 is the most what we call messianic or Christ-centered of all the psalms. It's focused on Jesus on the cross. And so everything that's happening here is prophesied in Psalm 22. So in Psalm 22, 16 through 18, For dogs encompass me. That's, That's Gentiles, Roman soldiers. Dogs encompass me. The company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, King David's writing this about a thousand years before these events. David had no clue what crucifixion was. So David is prophesying about how there's going to be a crucifixion, hands and feet pierced, and how the Roman soldiers are going to Divide his garments by casting lots. Verse 24. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which they should take. They're they're gambling with Geis for his clothing. And then verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. 9 a.m. It's 9 a.m. when they crucified Jesus. And they put the reason for his crime above him. Verse 26, the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And they crucify him between two criminals. Verse 27, with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. So Jesus is suspended there on the cross. And he's been beaten, flogged, he's been spat upon, he's got a crown of thorns been put on his head, he's been, he's been hit, he's been mocked, he's too exhausted to carry his own cross, and then they put the nails in his hands and the nails in his feet, and they suspend him on the cross between two criminals who both are yelling at him. Now we find out later on in Luke's gospel that one of the criminals gets saved, but then the Jewish leaders come and they continue the mocking. They continued to deride him. Verse 29, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from this cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He served others; he can't, or he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. They're wagging their heads. They're deriding Him. They're mocking Him. They're blaspheming Jesus. Again, this is prophesied in Psalm 22. Psalm 22:7. 7. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Jesus is sober-minded. He's clear. No narcotics in His system. He knows exactly what's happening to me. And what's amazing to me is the level of compassion that Jesus has for those that are brutalizing Him. Luke 23, 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Father, forgive them. Now let's talk about crucifixion for a moment. Crucifixion was invented by the Romans. The most cruel type of execution you can think of. It was reserved for slaves, criminals, the lowest of low, Violent criminals, prisoners of war. I'm going to say this, and this is probably historically accurate. Most men were crucified naked in shame. But because of the Jewish sensibilities and decorum, Jesus probably had a loincloth on. And you're not crucified. The death is not by the nails in your hand and the nails in your feet. That's not what kills you. That just keeps you up on the cross so that you don't fall down. There's no major artery that's severed by having the nails go in your hands and the nails go in your feet. What happens is Jesus is stripped out there, and he's almost naked, and he's struggling to breathe. And so here's what happens with with crucifixion. You die of suffocation or asphyxiation. Here's what happens. You kind of had to push yourself up with your legs to even breathe. To keep, to keep yourself just even breathing. And so that would cause muscle spasms to happen in your legs, in your arms, in your chest. And then usually what happens was there's heart failure or brain damage because you didn't get enough oxygen to your brain. Either shock, suffocation, or asphyxiation is what really causes the death in crucifixion. So it is a long, excruciating, painful death. Do you know where we get the word Excruciating. It's an English word, excruciating. It comes from the Latin word crux. The Latin word crux is the word cross. Excruciating. If you say excruciating and crucifixion at the same time, it sounds very similar. That's where we get the word excruciating, from the cross. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to endure the excruciating cross. The physical brutality, the flogging, the beating, the whipping, the striking, the spitting, the crown of thorns, all of the physical torture that comes with crucifixion. But I want to remind you of something, and this is very important. Historically, thousands of people were crucified during Jesus' time. The two thieves on each side were being crucified. So yes, it is painful physically, but there is something unfathomable about Jesus' crucifixion that sets it apart from every other crucifixion. You see, we don't call it the crucifixion per se, we call it the cross, because there's something unfathomable that happened with Jesus that was more than just the physical suffering. Yes, He endured physical torture on the cross. And yes, we need to understand that. But let's look at the second thing this morning, which is almost unfathomable. Here's the second thing we want to look at. Jesus experienced spiritual anguish on the cross. Not only was it physical torture, but there was a spiritual anguish that Jesus experienced. And it started all the way back in the garden when He sweat drops of blood. I want you to notice what happens here. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, that's high noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. For three hours, there's darkness over the entire land. Now you may say, well, maybe this was a, a solar eclipse No, it wouldn't happen during full moons. Passover happened at full moon. You wouldn't have a solar eclipse. Well, maybe it was a dust storm that came up and just made made it dark for three hours. No, this was a supernatural occurrence that God himself orchestrates for these three hours. When you say, why darkness? Why darkness over the land? If you know your Old Testament, darkness is a symbol for God's judgment. As a matter of fact, what was the ninth plague right before the Passover? The ninth plague right before the Passover was darkness over the land of Egypt. Exodus 10.21, the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. In ancient Egypt, a darkness came over the land, a darkness that could be felt right before the slaughtering of the lambs. And they slaughtered those lambs, and they put the, the blood on the lintel in the doorplace of the, of the home so that when the angel of death passed over, they would be protected. The wrath of God would not fall on those families because their firstborn would not be killed because they, there was blood. The angel of death saw the blood. But right before that judgment on Egypt, there was darkness right before Jesus, the true Passover lamb, dies on the cross and sheds his blood. There's darkness over the land. An ominous sign of judgment. Who's being judged? Jesus. The guilty verdict of our sin is coming down on Jesus. Jesus. The innocent Son of God, the pure, spotless Lamb, He's taking the judgment. Verse 34, we call this the cry of dereliction. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice Eloi, Eloi, lemma segbachtheni, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Notice what Jesus cries out. He doesn't say, my father, my father. Now, all throughout Jesus' ministry and his life, he had this intimate relationship and he called God his father. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus and God the father somehow got separated or the father is no longer the father, but, but what Jesus is crying out is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 It's the very first line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what does it mean? What does it mean that he was forsaken? It means in those three hours of darkness, darkness, he was treated as if he was a sinner in our place. He was experiencing the wrath of God. He was becoming a curse for us. He was drinking the cup of God's wrath. Mark 14, 36, just earlier in the garden, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. What's the cup that Jesus wanted removed? The cup of wrath but he says, I'm going to take it. I'm going to drink it to the last drop. I'm going to take the wrath, the judgment of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. He became a curse. He became a, a, a sin bearer. Listen to how Martin Luther comments on this verse. Pretty good insight from Luther. He says, "Quote: It was not that he himself committed these sins, but he received the sins that we had committed. They were laid on his own body that he might make satisfaction for them with his own blood. In short, our sin had to become Christ's own sin or else we will perish forever. Our sin had to become Christ's sin. Because Christ never once did sin. But in those moments, all of our sin was placed upon him. All of our sin was credited to him so that in those moments, God looked at him as if he had sinned even though he had not because he was carrying our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become sin the righteousness of God. Jesus was 100% perfect in thought, word and deed, never once sinned. This is what shocks me. This is what this is what is so unfathomable to me. I can't comprehend it. Think of Jesus never once ever sinning or experiencing sin in his life. Never once ever sinned. And yet in that one moment All of the sins of all of God's people come barreling down upon Jesus in one concentrated moment and he experiences it like he's never experienced anything else before. Our sin was being transferred or credited to him, imputed to him. John Calvin says it this way, when we behold, when we look at the disfigurement of the Son of God, we find ourselves appalled by his marred appearance. We need to think afresh that it is upon ourselves that we gaze, for he stood in our place. When you look at the bloody cross and see the disfigurement of Jesus, Calvin says, you're looking at yourself, because you should have been there, and Jesus died in your place. This is called penal substitutionary atonement. And a key doctrine of the faith that's under attack today, penal substitutionary atonement. Atonement. Some people call it PSA for short, penal substitutionary atonement. Let me just give you the three words there. What do they mean? Penal. Jesus was literally penalized paid the penalty for our sin what's the wage of sin the wage of sin is death romans 6 23 for the wages of sin is death but the free gift of god is eternal life in christ jesus jesus had to die our sin he had to pay the penalty substitutionary so penal he was penalized he paid the penalty substitutionary means he did it in our place He was our substitute. He did it where where we should have been the ones hanging on the cross, but he died there. And then third, atonement, means that Jesus literally died. He literally poured out his blood. He literally physically shed his blood on the cross for us. As Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus died. Isaiah 53, 5-6. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. The Lord's laid upon Him our sin. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not spare Jesus. Gave him up. First Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you've been healed. I'm using J.C. Ryle a lot. His book, Holiness, is out there, by the way, for free. Um, He was the Bishop of Liverpool back kind of during the time of Spurgeon. And I love his writings, and I was reading his commentary on this, and he quoted a guy named Jameson. I don't know who this Jameson is, but but J.C. Ryle quotes a guy named Jameson. Listen to this quote. All the wailings and howlings of the damned to all eternity... Will fall infinitely short of expressing the evil and bitterness of sin with such emphasis as these words My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus died in our place, suffering the full wrath of God. And what do they do? verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him saying drink here's the point Jesus is not going to drink the bitterness of the sour wine he's going to drink the bitterness of God's wrath to the last drop he's going to experience the justice that should have been ours The wrath of God. And then verse 37, He uttered a loud cry and breathed His last. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what the loud cry is. He uttered a loud cry. But we know from John's gospel what that loud cry was. John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His spirit. It is finished. One word in the Greek text, telestai, it means it's paid in full. Everything's been paid. Absolutely. It's been paid thoroughly. Never to be repeated. Once and for all, He paid for our sins. We sing the song, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood. Sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Here's what we should never forget. You and I should have hung on that cross bearing God's wrath for our wickedness. But in our place, Jesus stood condemned. Jesus died there. Jesus bled there. Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me there? So our sins may be many and great, but what Jesus did on the cross far outweighs them all. And notice what it says there. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Other gospels say he gave up his spirit. In other words, Jesus was in control all the way. He controlled when He gave up His Spirit. He laid down His own life on His own accord. We find out in John 10, 17-18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So when Jesus died, He gave His life up. He breathed his last. He cried out as finished. He sovereignly, voluntarily gave up his life. Now, what should this tell us about sin? You should hate sin. You should hate your own sin because it was our sin that nailed Jesus to that cross. When you look at the cross, you should think about your sin because it was our sin that drove the nails into his hands and feet. It was our sin that brought the wrath of God upon Him. It was our sin that caused Jesus to cry out in anguish on the cross. Listen to John Stott. He says this, It is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and not feel ashamed of ourselves. Apathy, selfishness, and complacency blossom everywhere in the world, except at the cross. And then what happens in verse 38? The curtain of the temple was torn in in two from top to bottom. Now we could spend a lot of time talking about this, but just briefly, why did it tear from top to bottom? God's doing this. It's a way of opening up a brand new way to God. No longer is it through the sacrificial system. Now this is symbolic of saying we have direct access to the Father through Jesus as the only way. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus experienced physical torture on the cross. Physical torture. But more importantly, Jesus experienced spiritual anguish on the cross. So we have one more thing to think about this morning. The third aspect, and it's actually a question. Third, what's your response to Jesus' death on the cross? What's your response? Well, let's see a response of someone who was there. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The centurion makes this confession of faith. Truly, this is the Son of God. Now, think about all the previous bystanders and people that had come by, person after person, the the, the criminals railing at Jesus, the religious leaders blaspheming him, all of the things that were going on. This centurion saw it from beginning to end. This centurion saw the trial, he saw the beating, he saw everything. He saw the execution, he saw it all to the very end. And notice what he says, truly, this man was the son of God. That's an interesting statement. This man was the son of God. Do you know at Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' transfiguration, God the Father says, this is my beloved son. So the Father says, this is the son of God. Do you know that when demons encountered Jesus, they knew he was the son of God. Every time a demon sees Jesus, they're always saying, what are you coming to do with us, son of God? Peter, when he makes that confession, when Jesus says, Who do people say I am? Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. So, up to this point, God the Father has confessed Jesus as the Son. Demons have confessed Jesus as the Son. And the apostles have confessed Jesus as the Son. But the centurion is the first person in the Gospels, besides those three, to make this confession. And it's a Gentile, it's a soldier. And notice what he says truly, truly. This man was the Son of God. In other words, this is the truth. I've come to believe this as the truth. Do you believe the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done? Can you make this same confession? Truly, this is the Son of God. That He's the Son of the living God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Truly, this is Jesus, the Son of God. And what has this Jesus done? Well, He's died on the cross in our place. Do you believe the truth that He experienced the, the physical torture, but He also experienced the spiritual anguish? What's your response to Jesus? Is it like this centurion where you look at it and all you can say is, This is the truth. I can see no other thing but the truth. Truly, Jesus is the Son of God. Look to Jesus. Look at the cross. And you see His perfect love on display. You guys know I love Spurgeon. One of these days I'm going to preach a sermon from Spurgeon. And I'll plagiarize, but I'll tell you I'm preaching it. Listen to him. Trembling sinner, look to Jesus and you'll be saved. Don't say my sins are many. His atonement's wondrous. Do you exclaim, I'm unworthy? Jesus loves the unworthy. Do you feel I'm so vile? It's the vile Jesus came to save. Turn your eyes on the cross. See Jesus only. He suffers, he bleeds, he dies. Turn your eyes on the cross. See Jesus bleeding, suffering, and dying in your place. Be like the centurion and confess Him as Lord. Truly, this is the Son of God. When you look on the cross, you will find Christ, a perfect Savior, That can forgive all your sins, grant you eternal life, and give you joy immeasurable. So everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I can't take for granted that you're here today and that you've done that. Just because you've come to church all these years, maybe for the first time, you've never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You've never truly seen the cross. You've never truly seen your sin. You've never really come to that point like the centurion where you say, in my heart of hearts, this is true. Truly, I'm placing all my faith in Jesus, the Son of the living God. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. May we all leave this place seeing the glories of God in the cross of Christ. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Lord Jesus, would you take these truths about your cross you burn them in our hearts would you sear them in our consciences would you implant them into our minds would we this week leading up to Easter just truly meditate and think about the glories of Calvary the beauty and wonder of the cross Lord let it lead us to worship Let it lead us to repentance. Let it lead us to joy. Lord, whatever you need to do in our hearts this week to prepare for the resurrection, would you do that? But for this day and this week, our hearts are focused on the cross. And then we come to next week where we focus on the empty tomb. So Lord, give our hearts just that sense of joy and anticipation this week. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'll be here after the service if you need someone to pray with, or you need encouragement, or you need someone to talk